You can access those uh, on just about any topic in the Bible, thebibleproject.com. In the 1990s, flag burning was the radical protest of the day, um, as sort of kneeling during the national anthem seems to be today. And a Texas law was enacted to outlaw flag burning. But in 1989, the U.S. Supreme Court determined that this act of protest was protected by the Constitution, the First Amendment Declaration of Our Right to Free Speech. So Texas and other southern states, surprise, surprise, uh, were left to contemplate ways that would solve what they perceived to be a problem, and that is people burning the American flag. And then one southern state got the great idea to enact a law that fined people only $25 if they assaulted a flag burner. Think about that for a moment. Uh, what Rolling Stone columnist P.J. O'Rourke said was, that's like pinning a kick-me sign on the backside of the majesty of the law. You're inciting violence. Now, that's, a, that's the opposite of a Christ-like way to resolve a problem, but it does illustrate that sometimes when there seems no solution, one presents itself, sometimes mysteriously. Here's a better story. When I was uh, in seminary, I ventured out to start a nonprofit organization that was going to bring an FM Christian radio station to my hometown, my adopted hometown of Tallahassee, Florida. Don't know why I thought I could do that. I was only 26 years old at the time and just full of myself. And, but what happened was, is over the next decade, uh, as we developed and applied for this permit to start this 50,000-watt FM station, I developed a great relationship with some people who were on our board of directors of this nonprofit organization. And we got along famously. And for years, we didn't have any problems at all. Uh, once we got the permit, we had the opportunity uh, to engage with a, another nonprofit organization, a, a, a Christian hit radio network called Way FM. They're uh, one of the world leaders in this whole industry. And we got the notion that we would have them come and start, raise the money, the, take the baton from us, so to speak, raise the money, go the rest of the way. And uh, when I met with them the first time, they intimated they would buy this permit from us. So we had this permit from the FCC, and they're like, well, we'll purchase it from you. So I came back to my board of directors who had previously agreed on everything, and now all of a sudden we were gone five different directions from center. We, we were arguing about okay, what are we going to do with this windfall of cash? All of a sudden it was, I want to spend it on this ministry and I want to donate it to this and it should go there. And a, and a group of people that had previously seen eye to eye on every step of the organization's development was now at a dead end. We, we couldn't come to any sense of conclusion. What do you do in that? So we agreed to pray and to ask the Lord for direction and then a solution presented itself that now seems obvious, but we all agreed it was the Lord's will. And that solution was, we were just going to give them the permit that we determined. We're not going to sell it to them. Thank you for the offer, but here, it's yours. That seemed Christ-like, and it seemed out of the ordinary, and it seemed 
the thing to do. You see, sometimes a solution which may seem obvious presents itself, but at the time of your greatest panic, it doesn't. And in today's text from, uh, from Esther 8, uh, and we now refer to this summer blockbuster, I'm calling it Esther, Queen of Persia. You know, it's just kind of, I, I've got this notion I want to start a movie. Um, the, we find the Jews in this particular part of the story in a bit of a tight spot. As you saw in the summary, she managed to get the king to get rid of the evil Haman, but there is this problem that the king has already authorized by decree and his signet ring that the Jews were to be destroyed. And according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, uh, the ruling law of the day, once the king had a signet ring declaration, it couldn't be reversed. And so Esther goes to the king and pleads and cries and says, please reverse this decision. But the king can't, so he empowers Mordecai and the king's scribes to come up with the solution. But it's amazing to think how they would get loose from what appears to be a dead end. The law of the Medes and the Persians were actually developed by kings, rather egomaniacal kings who saw themselves as the equivalent of gods. And these despots ruled with such an iron fist that they genuinely felt like they should never be questioned. No one should ever uh, not do exactly as they say. When they say jump, they don't want you to ask how high. They just want you to jump as high as you can. There are, incidentally, religious institutions and whole religions that have similar definitions of authority. And I would encourage you as a quick aside that one must be careful, be wary of any person or organization that would claim divine infallibility in their human judgments. Interestingly enough, the signet ring itself uh, is the king's symbol of authority, and this seal is what makes the thing irreversible. If you've ever gotten a, an article of incorporation uh, from a state, uh, when you get it back, they put the state's seal on it. It's to tell you this is for real. This is not reversible. We've decided it's done. So Esther and Mordecai are still in a jam, and they need a solution to a seemingly dead-end situation. And as is his custom, God comes through with a seemingly simple idea that no one had yet imagined. And so I'm going to read from verses 10 and 11 of Esther 8. This is Mordecai. Uh, speaking of Mordecai, it says, He wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud. I'm just curious how many men now think, uh, that's the first time I've ever heard the term bred from the royal stud in the scriptures, um, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city, listen, to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and then plunder their goods. So instead of getting what Esther had thought was the only uh, fix to the problem, miraculously this solution was discovered to simply issue a second contrary decree that essentially threatened with annihilation anyone who tried to harm the Jews. And what it did was it empowered this subset of the country, this subculture within Susa and 
Persia as a whole, it gave them effectively an unprecedented, most favored subculture status. Think of the irony of it all. First, they were being persecuted. There was an anti-Semitic cleansing, ethnic cleansing that was about to take place. Now, all of a sudden, they're given rights that no other group within a country was given. Imagine in the United States of America if one particular ethnic group was given the right that any time it felt threatened by another ethnic group within our country, they could just kill them all. Well, no other ethnic group, no other subset of people within Persia had this right. They were given uh, the ability, the right, to gather an army within their own country, empowering them to plunder a threatening people or province. Isn't it amazing when God makes a way where none seems to exist? I mean, they hadn't thought, okay, if you issued this, what are we going to do? We can't reverse this. So they just come up with a, a decree that effectively empowers the group of people who were being attacked. When I was younger, and of course I'm 54, you probably aren't familiar with this song unless your parents listen to it for most of you, but uh, Don Moen wrote a song, God Will Make a Way where there seems to be no way. He works in ways we cannot see. He will make a way for me. He will be my guide. Hold me closely to his side. With love and strength for each new day, he will make a way. Now, perhaps you've been there. Uh, uh, You seem to be in a dead-end career or a relationship that is going nowhere and you're miserable Maybe you love somebody and they keep making choices that get them stuck in a cul-de-sac of life and you think there's no way out for them. Possibly it's your own character. You say, I I can't change myself. I'm stuck in patterns that I just can't get free from. You don't see any way out. Well, the scriptures testify, and evidently here in Esther, that God creates, and the Latin term is ex nihilo. This is a term theologians use to describe the creative power of God. When he created the world, he didn't have matter to work with. He actually brought the world into existence by the power of his word. He created out of nothing. This is the power of our God. He doesn't have to have a present solution to fix your problems. You probably, in many situations, don't even see that there is a solution, but God can create one. As we've seen again and again in the coincidences of Esther, God, as the creator, can move people wherever he wants. And when people intend on being evil, our sovereign God allows them to do so only as a part of his plan to display his glory for all to see. In this case, God's movement created a solution that theretofore wasn't considered or even thought of. And how do we know that, you might add? You're like, how do we know that this wasn't in play? Well, you can see it in Esther's actions. Uh, On behalf of Mordecai and the people, she goes before the king weeping and pleading for mercy. And this isn't the behavior of somebody who has a solution in mind. That would have been how she progressed in the previous chapters. Before, Esther was calm and almost calculated in executing a plan to expose and reveal Haman as the enemy of the Jews. 
But after they got rid of this Haman character, they were still left with this seemingly irreversible decree. And without a solution in mind, she cried and pled with the king, please. And he said, I I can't. She did not know how to fix the situation. Come to think about it, Esther is actually a good model for those of us who are too proud to come before our God and plead for help. The Apostle James says that one of the reasons we don't see God make a way where there seems to be no way is that we never get to the place of doing as Esther did, seeing ourselves desperately in need. We, we won't humbly ask. We're proud and entitled in some ways. We feel like we shouldn't have to ask. God should just provide. Why should I have to get on my knees and go, please, I'm in this situation that's dicey. Come and help me. We're, we end up getting angry that we're in the dicey situation in the first place. James said this in chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. See, God's desire is to be seen so that he will be praised and honored for who he is and so that you and I know with the vastness of his character that he's able to do anything. When we get to see him in his glory and in his power, when we get to see the majesty and character and attributes of God, it empowers us with faith to believe he can solve this problem. So it's God's intention that we as broken human beings would often find ourselves out of options. See, when we're out of options, this is God's wheelhouse. This is where he is really good. Uh, God makes a way where there seems to be no way. And that's because in the end, we go, wow, God was majestic in this pursuit. One of the beautiful truths of the scriptures is that Jesus is in many ways like the character Esther. As we've seen in previous pictures that we've tried to draw of the gospel from the book of Esther, You see Esther pleading before the king, and and this is effectively what Jesus does for you and I at this very moment. In Hebrews chapter 7, verses 25 through 27, this is what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. In many ways, it's the combination of seeing God's power and holiness, and you combine that with his mercy and love, that is the fuel of the gospel. It is fashionable for people to say, I want to focus on the love of God, but if you don't see the holiness of God, the majesty of God, then you don't really get just how amazing his love is. This is seen... Uh, in Jesus' life, when you, you see this combination of holiness and mercy. 
you also see God's controlling of things, his superintending of even the evil intentions of other people, creating solutions where there doesn't seem to be one. We talk about our own sinful condition. No one would have thought, I got an idea. Let's have God come as a human being and be the sacrifice for the sins of all these human beings. He's worthy and holy and undeserving of punishment, so why don't we make him a solution to the problem of human sin? God provided that for us. We see in Jesus' life that the evil intentions of others that led to his crucifixion, which not only saves from sin those who trust in him, but it was the means by which the loving, merciful God is seen in human history. We now get to see this majesty, a God who's holy, walked among us and saved us. We saw the character, the attributes of God in the human life of Jesus. The amazing nature of God's grace is seen when we really arrive at a place of holy terror, realizing that we deserve God's just displeasure. But it's in that moment when we humbly plead for mercy that we receive his undeserved favor, which is just another word for grace. We don't, in that moment, get what we deserve, which is justice. We get what we don't deserve, an undeserved, most favored status. You go from being morally God's enemies, the scriptures say, to being his beloved children and inheritors, co-inheritors with Christ. However, without the sense of his holiness, we, f- we don't really fully enjoy the scope of the joy that produces awe and radical obedience to Jesus. Uh, without seeing ourselves as without hope except for the intervening mercy and grace of Jesus, we would certainly tend towards boasting about our own goodness, certainly compared to other people. You see that. Ever been around that religious person, the, suit, the uber religious person at the office? who loves to kind of show out that they're better than everybody else or more faithful than everybody else in some way. Everybody at the office hates them. It's like the guy on The Bachelor, my wife, The Bachelorette, my wife and daughter were watching that show. I guess I just outed them. And there was some supposedly Christian guy on that show, and he was hated by everybody because he was a dope. Well, this is what happens when a person doesn't understand that they don't deserve God's grace. It's a gift. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 3, there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. See, when God is the one who's just and justifier, we are free from this notion of deserving anything. And we become somebody who is not boastful. 
It is in recognizing that the one whom we admire from afar is better than we hoped. He exceeds our expectation of kindness and warmth. This is what produces devotion. I don't know how many of you are country music fans. Um, Brad Paisley is considered by most people to be, uh, you know, the uh, country music star of the day. Uh, Multiple Grammys, uh, unbelievable uh, career, millionaire, beautiful home, Franklin, Tennessee. Wonderful wife. He's been married to Kimberly Williams, the father of the bride, daughter, for those of you who are into the rom-com thing. Uh, They've been married for quite some time. Maybe you didn't realize, too, like your pastor, um, he is from West Virginia and a gargantuan West Virginia University football fan. Uh, So much so that South Park has actually characterized him in such a way that as to designate him as Brad Paisley from West Virginia. Uh, He sang Country Roads a couple years ago, commemorating the anniversary of when John Denver sang it at the opening of our football stadium in Morgantown, West Virginia. Uh, see, he is a superstar. He, he is otherworld. I mean, there, uh, my sister and brother live in Franklin, Tennessee. You can't get anywhere near his home. It's a hundred-acre compound with, like, walls like an embassy. Uh, finding him would be really difficult to do. Uh, he is in another place, you know. I am here. He is there. Plus, you think, if I meet this celebrity... They're probably going to disappoint me because, you know, if you've ever had a celebrity encounter, sometimes they're really not nice people. So I'm at the Dodger game last week and look up on the screen and there he is, Brad Paisley. And as he's walking out, I walk down to the, to the, to the edge of where I was sitting and he looks up at me and I flashed him my badge, which is the back of my cell phone cover. It's a West Virginia logo. And he came over to me. And I said, would it be okay if you and I took this picture together? He was the warmest, kindest person in the world. He shook my hand. He goes, great choice in teams. He's a Dodger fan. He's a West Virginia fan. If he and I lived in the same neighborhood, we could hang out together. (laughs) Maybe he can build me a little house on his compound in Nashville, Tennessee. Then like Brooks and everybody else that left our church, I'm moving to Tennessee. My point is that awesomeness and kindness is what creates devotion and gratitude. This week, I went out and bought some Brad Paisley music. But it isn't until we see our own limitations that we can appreciate the Lord's power and his gracious movement in our lives to create a way where there seems no way. Let's prepare our hearts for communion this morning, shall we?